to take a copy of God's Word this morning and turn open to the book of Hebrews. If you want to use a pew Bible right there in the pew in front of you, uh, you can turn open to page 1001 in the pew Bibles. And this morning, we're beginning Hebrews. This is so exciting. We're going to do three verses this morning as we begin this book together. Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 together this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Before we read the Word together, let's go before the Lord and ask for His blessing upon the reading and preaching of the Word. Father, we come before You this morning... As the psalmist said, like children that don't know when to come out of the rain, we are in need of instruction, we need to hear your voice. And so we pray that even as you spoke to the prophet with that still small voice, that you speak into each of our ears this morning. There not be a person in this place or who is joining us even I live stream this morning. It does not hear your voice. We pray that it would not stop with entering our ears, but that it would go to our minds. The truth would seep into our hearts. It would stir our souls. That we would find that we have encountered you, the living God, this morning. Speak to us, we pray, by the power of your Spirit, and in the name of your blessed Son, Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, I've heard a number of jokes over the last few weeks since I announced to you that we were doing the the book of Hebrews, most of them have gone along the lines of something like this. What is this going to be about a 10-year series? Uh, it could be, but it won't be, uh, I promise. Uh, we will move through this book and we'll seek to do so. We'll take some different chunks as we go through and try and go through it at a little faster clip than uh, 10 years. But I'm excited uh, to walk through the book of Hebrews and the reason is this, is because 
You can't read or study the book of Hebrews apart from Christ being front and center. The writer of Hebrews puts him front and center. You can't escape him. And my great hope is that as you and I go through the book of Hebrews together over this fall and this spring and probably the following fall and maybe spring and that we will all come to know and see and delight in this Lord and Savior more together. Uh, that is my great hope for us. First, just a little introduction to the book. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? Well, there have been different takes through the centuries. Uh, in the early centuries of the church, uh, many believed that the Apostle Paul had written the book. There is surely Pauline language in the book of Hebrews, uh, but I tend to agree with most scholars of recent time and even the Middle Ages and time of the Reformation that believe that, no, Paul probably didn't write this book. The reason being, and not least among them, is that Paul, when he writes one of his books, he always signs it that he wrote the book, that this is a book from the Apostle Paul, a servant of the Lord Christ Jesus, or something along those lines, and there's no such salutation in this book. There's also, some of the language in this book is not exactly how Paul would go about stating something or how he would organize it as he does in other letters. But it's very clear that Paul had an influence upon the person that wrote this book because there is Pauline language all over the place. It's clear that the person knew Paul. It's also clear that they knew Paul's disciple, Timothy, as they will speak of Timothy later in this book. And so different people have been thrown out over the years. Barnabas has been a uh, person that many have said that's who wrote this book. Others have pointed to Apollos or pointed to Luke or pointed to Clement, all who had close relationships with the Apostle Paul. Uh, I tend to lean towards Apollos uh, for a couple of different reasons, but really the, the answer to the question is who wrote the book of Hebrews in I think the third century uh, church father Origen probably said it best when he said this, who actually wrote the epistle? Only God knows. And that's probably about right, and we won't know until we are in glory. What we do know is that the author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians. And he's writing to Jewish Christians that are facing all kinds of suffering for the sake of Christ. And so he is writing to them to continue to hold on to Christ. Don't lose your grip on Christ. Persevere in Christ. And don't turn back to the Jewish faith. In chapter 10, he will remind them of how they persevered in the past when they were, quote, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And he says, quote, joyfully, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. They're being persecuted. However, none of this community appears to be persecuted to the point of martyrdom as of yet. As Paul will say in, later in the book that there are none that have shed their blood, chapter 12. And yet, it appears that they are scared of this prospect. They see it on the horizon. Because in chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews will 
admonish them to stop forsaking the fellowship of the saints. Some of them are not coming to corporate worship, no doubt out of fear of being put to death. And he's saying, no, you must gather together with God's people. Do not forsake the weekly fellowship of the saints. And because of all of this, I think it's probably right that this book was written somewhere in the late 60s A.D., uh, right before Nero's persecution of the Christian church. But they can see it on the horizon. As this writer is writing to the church, he is writing to them as a preacher. And many have taken this over the centuries, that this is really just one long sermon, is what it is. The sermon that he is delivering to the people that he is caring for. And it's interesting, at least to me, what it is that he encourages this beleaguered group of Christians with. What is he going to encourage them with to persevere? How can they continue to persevere? He does it not by exhorting them. He doesn't give them all of these exhortations. He doesn't bring all kinds of practical things to bear. But rather what He does is He points them to the greatness and the glory of Jesus. That's what He does. And that seems very instructive. When our hearts are fainting, when troubles come, when it feels like, oh, there are troubles on every side and it feels like the world is caving in on me even when it feels like the society or cultural world that I live in is opposed to everything that I believe as a Christian. What is the answer? The writer of Hebrews would say the answer is for you and I to look upon and to think upon and meditate upon the greatness and the glory of Christ. The writer does that here in the opening few verses. He's setting the stage by bringing out the greatness and glory of Christ. And he does that by stating six things about Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of God. He is the heir of all things. He is the Creator. He is the sustainer, He is the redeemer, and He is the Lord. And we're going to walk through those this morning, but what I'm going to do, so you don't get freaked out about 30 minutes into the sermon, I'm spending almost all of my time on that first one, uh, that He is the revelation of God, because we will have time in the rest of the letter to explore the rest of them. He is the revelation of God. The writer of Hebrews jumps right in. As I said, there is no salutation. There is no greeting. He puts Christ front and center in all of His greatness and all of His glory in these opening verses by saying, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. We're going to see a lot of this as we go through the book of Hebrews. There is going to be contrast. Jesus is going to be contrasted with what has come before Him. He, and He will be shown over and over to be better, to be greater, to be more. 
In fact, that word better or greater will be used over 25 times in the book of Hebrews to say Jesus is better. He is greater than that which has come before Him. He is far superior, the writer of Hebrews is trying to point out. He is far greater than anyone and anything else. He is, in a word, simply great and glorious. Look at the contrast. Long ago, verse now, these last days, long ago, and then he poetically states, many times and in many ways, God spoke to his people by and through the prophets. Such great prophets as Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah and Elisha and Samuel and Hosea and Jonah. And then there are the minor prophets like Iddo and Shimei. He spoke in many ways. He will speak through visions and He will speak through dreams and He will speak through thunder and He will speak through miracles and He will speak through signs. But here's the contrast. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. There's a great dividing line in history. And the writer of Hebrews is saying the great dividing line in history is Jesus. The revelation of God. There's what God spoke before, what we could roughly equate with the Old Testament and what He has now spoken in these last days by His Son, what we could roughly equate with the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews in saying this is not disparaging the Old Testament. The Old Testament is God-breathed. It is God's Word. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is true. It is right. God cannot lie. But he is making it clear that in the coming of the Son, God fulfilled what the Old Testament but demonstrated in shadows. It's this fulfillment language. These last days. Fulfillment of what was prophesied and told long ago. These last days. They begin with the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. The Son becoming flesh is not only the dividing line of all of human history. It's also the fulfillment of all that God promised His people. God has spoken. And He's spoken authoritatively in the person of His Son. His Son is the, the revelation of God. Now, to understand Christ as a revelation of God, we have to think about something that we tend to, I think, take for granted. And it's easily, I think, lost on us. We take for granted the fact that God has spoken to us. God speaks to us. And the fact that God speaks to us reveals to us who God is. So first, if you think with me about this, the fact that God speaks means that He is living. He is living. It is an act of life to speak. No life, no speech. 
Second, God speaking into this world not only proclaims that He is living, but that He is also loving. He speaks because He loves. He didn't have to speak to us. You realize this, right? He didn't have to speak to you and I, but He chooses to speak to us. And why does He choose to speak to us? Because He loves us. And it's an absolutely shocking love. That a God who is so high above should condescend to speak to us who are so very low. If before coming to church this morning, I was driving on my way to church and my cell phone rang and I picked it up and I answered and I said, hello, this is Jason. And on the other end of the line I heard, this is the White House, please hold for the President. And then after about 15 seconds, I hear a voice on the other line, side say, is this Jason Halopoulos? Yes, this is Jason. Well, this is President Joe Biden. I was just curious how you slept last night and wanted to encourage you to have a good morning at University Reformed Church this morning. If I got that call, it would be shocking. And I would tell you about it. If I was at the gas station this morning and the gas station attendant came out and talked to me, not so shocking. I love gas station attendants, but I wouldn't tell you about it. When so high speaks to one that is so low, it's meant to grab our attention. It's meant to stop you. It's love. He loves us with a shocking love. It's not only... That his speaking shows that he lives and that he loves. That leads to our third subpoint here. Him speaking reveals that he is merciful. Apart from him speaking, we would be trapped in the utter darkness of our sin and the utter darkness of this fallen world. Apart from him speaking. If you're on a raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean because your ship had gone down and you were in that raft and it is darkness above and it is darkness below and it is darkness around and there are sharks. You wouldn't know which way to paddle. How do you know where to go? You'd feel alone. You'd feel lost. You'd rightly feel hopeless. But then let's say you heard a strong voice in the middle of that darkness that said, I see you, and I'm coming to you. Now that'd be a reason to rejoice if you hear that voice. You'd describe it as an act of incredible mercy to hear such a voice in such darkness, and it coming to you. speaks, God shows He is merciful in speaking to us. The greatest revelation of His life, of His love, of His mercy is demonstrated though in these last days because He's spoken to us by His Son, His only Son. Before He spoke through intermediaries, prophets, but now He has come to us in His Son, in the person of His Son, and He speaks to His people. 
thinking upon the greatness and glory of Christ, we are first to see that He is the revelation of God. The prophets gave revelation from God, but He is the revelation of God. The prophets were, as John the Baptist will say, the penultimate prophet, he will say in John 3, the prophets, he says, are from the earth and they speak in an earthly way. Whereas the Son, John will say, the Son is from above and He speaks of what He knows from eternity past. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. John will say in the opening chapter of his Gospel, he will say in chapter 1, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That is, you can only know God by the Son of God. He only makes him known. Now the church in the Old Testament knew God, but they only knew him shrouded in thick darkness. And God appeared in Exodus 20 on Mount Sinai with the nation of Israel once they had come out of the Exodus in this great epochal moment and the history of earth and the history of the covenant people of God. We're told that Moses went up to meet with God. And what did he do? He went up to meet and it says Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. He descended in thick darkness. In First Kings 8, when Solomon finally builds this temple to God, it's going to be the place where God dwells among His people in the land. He's going to be with them How do they know that God is there? Well, He descends in this thick, dark cloud upon the temple. They saw Him, but they saw Him imperfectly. And it's for good reason. It was meant to be instructive so that they would long for the day to come when they would see Him as He is. Jesus will say, Abraham, Abraham of all people, Abraham longed to see my day. See me. If we would know God as He is, we must see Him in Jesus. John 14, it's one of those verses that For a lot of you, it's the first verse you ever memorized. John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. And then He immediately says, If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. And Philip, Jesus' disciple, will say in response, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus responds in this way to Philip, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
That is, the Son is, as the writer of Hebrews says in verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The glory descended in a cloud upon Mount Zion and on the tabernacle and on the temple and it showed that God had come down though He had no body. Though He has no form. They knew He was there because the brightness of His glory would shine for all to see. The radiance of the glory of God. A Hebrew word glory is the Hebrew word kavod. One of those words that It sounds like what it means. Kavod. You can hear it. It means heavy. The glory of God is His heaviness. His weightiness. His otherness. Jesus is the radiance. The glory of God. I was thinking about this this morning, driving in early this morning to church, and the sun was rising, and I was driving down Holt Road, Holt vacation destination, so of course, a beautiful sunrise this morning, driving down Holt Road, and the sun in the sky, and I was trying to stare at it. And there was this corona all around it, and it was just blinding. We know the sun by its rays that shine upon us. And so we know the Father by the radiance of the glory of the sun shines upon us. My favorite accounts in the Bible is when the three inner disciples are taken up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Jesus has all His time with them in His earthly ministry. He has shrouded His glory. And He takes John and Peter and James up that mountain. And then He lets them see His glory. Glory that He will say in John 17 as He's praying, the glory that I had with you, Father, before the world existed. And Peter is so taken by seeing the glory of Christ that he's ready to camp out for all of eternity there. Let's pitch tents. Let's have a palooza up here. Glory of Christ. In Revelation, we are told that there will be no sun in the new heavens and the new earth. Why? Because Jesus will shine in all of His glory. He is the radiance of the glory of God. As Paul says in Colossians 1, He is the image of the invisible God. You want to know who God is, what God is like, then you look to the Son of God. They are the same in substance, equal in power and glory as our catechism says. And the writer of Hebrews, he's trying to point this out to you and I just in these opening verses. In the Greek, there is no His before Son as you have it there in your ESV Bibles. There's no His there. There's no possessive article there. In fact, there's no article there at all. There's no definite article like the Son. There's no article. 
And yet he uses an article before the prophets. The prophets. Westcott, a 19th century New Testament scholar, points out that without the article, what the author is highlighting is that the Son has an eternal relationship with the Father. He is. He is. He is, we are told in verse 3, the exact imprint of His nature. That is, if you were to take a stamp and you stamp it on a thing, whatever that stamp is, it leaves that impression there. And as God is very God, so the Son is very God. He is no counterfeit. He is the exact imprint of His nature. Everything that you see in God, every attribute that is in God, His very being, His very essence, it is in the Son. He is, as we confess in the Nicene Creed, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. He is the revelation of God. No more revelation is needed. And let's be clear, no more revelation will be given He has given you all that you need in His Son. We're coming to Saving Faith. I was in high school and early college to my shame. Oh, grieves me. I used to tell people over and over, I will never believe in God until I hear Him speak to me. I won't believe God till He speaks to me. What a fool that young man was. God had spoken to me. And He's spoken to you. He's spoken in His Son. He can't give anything more. He can't give anything else. This is why it is such an abomination that there are peddlers out there. That there are frauds out there that are saying that they have new revelation. That they have something new from God. That they can add to this book. It undermines who He is. He is the revelation of God. Paul will say in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. If you and I make the claim that something more is needed from God, then Jesus is insufficient revelation of God. And if Jesus is an insufficient revelation of God, then He is not God. And if He is not God, there is no hope of salvation with this God. Ah. But He is the revelation of God. He is great beyond great. And He is glorious beyond glorious. He is the revelation of this God who lives, who loves, and is merciful. 
Second, he follows with he is the heir of all things. All things exist for him, as Paul will say in Romans 11, all things are from him and through him and to him. I'm not going to spend time here this morning. I just addressed this last week. All exists for him. He is the revelation of God, and because he is the Son of God, he is rightfully the heir of all things. All things are for Him. All things are to Him. Third and fourth, Christ is the Creator of all things. And He is the Sustainer of all things. Not only are all things created by Him and for Him, but all things are sustained by Him. This same Son created all things. He says through whom He also created the world. And that word for world is a Word that is expansive there in the Greek that we will translate as ages. The writer of Hebrews is making it clear. The ages were created by Him. That is everything you can possibly imagine. Everything that you know. All things created by Him. Everything you can see. Also what you can't see. From the smallest atom to the most distant galaxy. Everything in the physical realm. But not just things in the physical realm. But even in the spiritual realm. Every angel. Every fallen angel. Your very souls. All created by Him. And for Him. Not only... All things get their existence from Him, but all things continue to exist by Him. He's the sustainer of all. Verse 3, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. The laws of gravity work this morning because He upholds the laws of gravity by the word of His power this morning. This pulpit does not crush underneath the unbelievable strength that I have this morning. Because God in Christ sustains this pulpit this morning. Your heart beats this morning because Christ sustains it, let alone gives it form and helps it to maintain its structure. He sustains all things by the word of His power. If there was a moment, even a millisecond, that He stopped sustaining, everything would disappear. I've often thought about this with Christ as laid out on the cross. You think even as He is on this tree of torture, that but that cross remains because He sustains it even as He is taking His dying breath. But the nails that keep Him pinned to that cross, they have substance. They still have form because He's sustaining them. But those people that are at the foot of the cross that are mocking Him and passing by and deriding Him, they can walk. They can even mock. There's sound coming out of their mouths and it's floating through the air because He sustains it. This is a great Christ. 
glorious Christ. Glorious Christ is fifth and sixth. Redeemer and Lord. He says in verse 3, after making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is not a distant creator and sustainer. He draws near to His people. He not only speaks to us, He atones for us with His very person. He dies in our place, this glorious Son. And after His suffering in this way, we are told He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Listen, this is so very important because Levitical priests never sat down. Morning and night, all day long, 24-7, they are offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice because there was more that was needed. Jesus offers His sacrifice upon the cross and as He cried out, it is finished. No more. One sacrifice for all. As Redeemer, He sits down the right hand of God. He redeems and He rules. The Son is Lord even as He is Redeemer. This echoes the most quoted of all Old Testament prophecies, one of those revelations from long ago thus is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He reigns. This great and glorious Christ reigns. It's the revelation of God. The heir of all things. The creator, the sustainer, redeemer, and Lord. You... Jewish Christians that are being persecuted, that are losing your possessions, that are fearful of being martyred for the faith, and you are tempted to turn back to the Jewish faith, remember this. Contemplate this. Let me put before you this, how great and glorious is the Savior that you have claimed. Let this be your strength. This. You and I are to see Christ above all else. Whatever ails you, we are to see Christ above all else. I'm going to just close with two applications this morning with two questions. First is for those of you in this room this morning. In a room this size, there are a dozen of you, maybe dozens. You don't know this Christ, the revelation of God. You don't know Him as the Son of God. You don't know Him as Redeemer and Lord. Don't know him as your creator and your sustainer, though he is. This is my question for you. Would you dare, would you dare this week, 
to read one of the Gospels. Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament. The very beginning of the New Testament. Would you dare just to read one of those? If you read John, it takes you all of two hours. You could sit down and read it in two hours. You want the abridged version, go to Mark. It's an hour and a half. Would you dare to read it? If he is the revelation of God, you want to know. I dare you to read it. Dear Christian, my question for you is this. Do you consider seeing the greatness and the glory of Christ your highest privilege and greatest responsibility? Do you? And does that cause you to seek for greater and greater views of His glory? This is what the writer of Hebrews is aimed at. He wants these Jewish Christians to have more and more a view of the greatness and the glory of Christ. If there is one thing that I could give to you as your pastor, this is what it would be above all else. I just want you to have more and more of a view of Christ. That you would see His greatness and His glory more and more because it shapes everything else. It is a balm for your pains. It's an encouragement for all of your sorrows. It's strength in your weakness. It's the joy that your soul is longing. You've probably been to a sports game or a concert or an art exhibit or maybe you were at a restaurant or walking down the street when someone famous walked by and, and the whole crowd kind of moves. And everybody's kind of doing one of these. Just jockeying for position just to get a, a better view. Do you live your Christian life jockeying for position to get a better view of Christ? Are you seeking to throw off every encumbrance, every sin, because sin clouds your view of Christ? Are you being diligent? Are you being disciplined? Have more of a view of Christ. You rise early each morning to read your Bible and to pray because you just want to see more of Christ. You meditate on Him throughout the day. Do you find yourself stealing away little moments of prayer throughout the day because you just want to know and see more of Christ? As you find His greatness and His glory to be a delight, Are you serious? Are you as serious? About getting a better view of Christ as you are about finishing that degree 
taken off that extra five pounds. We're finishing this project at work. Are you even more serious about this? You see, our lives tell us that we truly see it as a privilege and a responsibility to see more of the greatness and glory of Christ. John Owen once said this, he said, What are all the stained glories, the fading beauties of the world, of all the devil showed our Savior from the mount, what are they in comparison of one view of the glory of God represented in Christ and of the glory of Christ as His great representative? The more we see of Him, the more we will delight in Him. That will be your everlasting joy. You find Christ great and glorious. I love, the psalmist says at one point, he says, one thing have I asked of the Lord. One thing have I asked of the Lord. What would that be? One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord to gaze upon His beauty. Is that what you asked for? that what you seek? The hope is, is that we will seek that together as we go through the rest of the book of Hebrews. And then we'll have a more full view of this glorious, beautiful, majestic Christ together. Let's pray. Our Father, we exalt You this morning. Thankful that you are a God who has chosen to reveal yourself to sinful creatures like us. I pray for every single heart and soul in this room that's with us live streaming this morning that there would not be one that ends this day without seeing the greatness and glory of Christ. And oh Father, forgive us where we not count it as a privilege and do not count it as a responsibility to seek after. For those of us you have condescended in your love to give this great view to. Oh, we would see more of our Savior that we might know more of you to your glory and praise now and for all of eternity. It's in the strong name of Christ the Savior, this revelation of God's name we pray. Amen.